Independence Day. It's Independence Day all down the line. Just say goodbye. It's Independence Day. It's Independence Day. Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. Here on this episode of the Directors Club, we are taking a look at part two of the films of Orson Welles. Yes, uh, welcome back, everyone. For those of you who haven't caught our part one, first of all, hope you do. But to summarize, for Welles' first film, Citizen Kane, he had every resource possibly available to a first-time filmmaker. He proceeded to get into conflict after conflict with the studios on each film. Sometimes it was a little more his fault. Sometimes it was the studio's fault. But the bottom line is, after Macbeth, the studios were no longer going to fund his projects, and Orson Welles went indie. During this phase of his career, Orson Welles finds that he needs to do a lot of acting in other people's films just to fund his own. And it, it, it starts at the beginning of the 50s and goes all the way through the end of his life, where you see him in all kinds of uh, questionable projects, some great ones too. But wherever you see Orson Welles as an actor, you could be sure he's trying to scrounge up the money to make his next movie. Most ironically, he played a studio head in the first Muppet movie. <laughs> and uh, Kermit and friends go to him for the uh, rich and famous contract. And there behind the big desk is Orson Welles. And he must have just loved tweaking uh, the studios in that way. Yeah, that must have been a very, very weird feeling trying to <laughs> inhabit that particular role, seeing as how the shabby level of treatment that he had received. You tripped me up, jealousy, you brought me down, you bring me sorrow, you cause me pain, yeah, yeah. jealousy, when will you let go? The first thing that he used to try and start his independent phase was... Ironically, another Shakespeare film to follow Macbeth, his take on Othello in 1951. Yes, this is Shakespeare's statement on jealousy. Othello is Venice's greatest soldier, but also being a Moor, Othello is an outsider. And he marries Desdemona, daughter of a very powerful senator, but is uh, plagued by suspicions of infidelity planted by his two-faced and maniacal underling, Iago. To say the least, he does not take it well. I'm going to admit that I came in from a perspective that this is the only version of Othello that I have ever seen. Um, my previous experiences with it have entirely upon been upon the board game. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just judge. I am, can only judge on what this movie is doing, which is does not have the longest running time. And 
I can see how there are there could potentially be more machinations that maybe were cut or were not able to be filmed. But my impressions on here is that in Othello, I think Wells was deliberately trying to open things up and it opens up in like the most drastic way possible because there's many things that are set right on the seashore, set out in the outdoors at this really large like castle. So it's trying to take the story in a more expansive setting, at least. Well, the, the theatricality is gone, and the way this is filmed is really jaw-dropping. Instead of the uh, sets that were used for Macbeth, now Wells is on location and on location everywhere. It took him three years to shoot, and it was filmed in Venice, uh, Tuscany, Rome, and Morocco, because he would have to shoot bits of it, make more money, and then shoot more bits of it. So you could have a scene where somebody uh, turns a corner one year in one country and is shown again two years later. And the fact that he is able to make most of this invisible is a testament to to the filmmaking. Now, the one thing that is not invisible is the dubbing issue because he didn't have access to the same actors over all these periods. So uh, a lot of the dialogue, especially from the minor actors, needed to be dubbed and were often dubbed by Wells himself. But this movie made me kind of think of a question because I've seen a number of other Othello films and productions, and I, I have to ask, is there a difference between great cinema and great Shakespeare? Capturing what the film is about. While there's no question the gorgeousness, the the richness of the visuals here are something to behold, I don't think he tells the narrative in as strong a way as some other productions and some other films because of two things. First of all, in his own performance is very low key. Othello is often expresses his jealousy by going into massive rages. Oh, okay. And, Hmm. and Wells generally avoids those. He keeps his conflict very internal, but if we're going to, by that the the green-eyed monster as uh, Shakespeare originated is is going to be enough to force him into such a state of madness that he kills his own wife, who he loves, based on this jealousy, then I think maybe something a little bigger from Wells might have been helpful here an actor who we know can get big when he wants to well yeah that's pretty fascinating i was more buying into the story and i think Mm -hmm. part of it is that just like in macbeth othello is presenting as a master soldier somebody who's supposed to be really great in matters of wartime and thus i kind of thought hey it has discipline he Like, somebody who ends up just raging like a maniac at the slightest hint of jealousy does not seem like the kind of person who would be successful in battles to the extent that the people would lead him. So, 
Wells's subtlety is an interesting choice, and, and that worked for me because I do see the emotions roil in against him, and Wells does a really nice job of focusing in on Othello's face and top part of his figure and just gives room to settle as the emotions play across his face. Like, the jealousy to me is not a giant propane tank that's been set on fire Mm -hmm. and, like, has set him off. So much is that it is a skittering flame that just shows up and then he's troubled by it. And then, but then he can let it go. But then it keeps coming back. And the, the, those phases of him of the of the jealousy affecting him more and more, I think was he effectively brings out in the movie. So yeah, it, that is an interesting decision by Wells, and I, I don't think it undermines the film. Although I think it could have been more interesting to see his performance more varied. But what I find more problematic is the use of the Iago character here played by Michael McLeamore, who is an older actor, definitely uh, older than Wells at this point, and plays Iago as very much this kind of stern and unlikable villain when... What's so powerful about the Iago character is his mystery and his ability to manipulate Othello. And I didn't really buy that Othello could be so easily manipulated by this Iago. Now, there is another version of Othello, a more modern version, certainly with nowhere near the visual flair that Wells brings, but has a performance from Kenneth Branagh. It's uh, Oliver Parker's 1995 version of Othello with uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Othello and uh, Kenneth Branagh as Iago. And Branagh's performance here, I think, is almost definitive because he really hits home the entire I am not what I am mystery to him and his joy. What's taken out here also is when he talks directly uh, to the audience and lets us know a little bit more of his mechanisms. Oh, so wait a minute. So it's a (laughs) little more like a House of Cards kind of thing going on? Well, you know, House of Cards was loosely based on Richard III. Uh, No, I did not. (laughs) So yeah, House of Cards took that whole bit from Shakespeare. Okay. And and Iago (laughs) is a more subtle villain than Richard III, but it should be a juicier role. And I do think that opportunity was lost. Apparently, Wells decided that uh, Iago's motivation for his, for his hating Othello in this version was that he's impotent, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting, especially considering the route that Wells is going to take in certain other supporting characters later on in his filmography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that Macbeth, I think, has over Othello, or rather, Wells' Macbeth versus Wells' Othello, is that Wells' Macbeth had an accompaniment of actors who had a very high to exceptionally high quality of performance. And in Othello, considerably less so. (laughs) 
Iago in particular, he does not really bring about anything more than a stern level of glumness upon mm-hmm. I vaguely dislike the Moor. <laughs> uh, and I just don't want him to be happy. <laughs> and you neither know why he's perpetuating these awful chicanery upon Othello, nor do you really care to know why he's why he's doing it it's just the guy's a dick <laughs> right and and that's death for this play because he he shouldn't be a dick he should be the devil he should be uh the little devil on Othello's shoulder who's whispering to him and causing him to go against his very nature because Othello should be sympathetic at the beginning and then it's so tragic to see his fall to the point where he he loses everything. Yeah, I want to also point out, though, that when I was watching it, I do like what the text does in terms of the very subtle ways that... Iago pricks at Othello's ego. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a case where he's set up an elaborate Rube Goldberg scheme that has uh, been, like, money-moving parts. He, he just knows when to subtly guide Othello and point out what, that, no, I'm not saying he, I'm not saying she's cheating on you. Well, that's not what I'm saying. And that's the very phrasing that puts it in his head. Right. I think those subtleties are brought about nicely on the text, but the motivations behind inducing these thoughts just gets lost in a not a really great performance. And because imagine those lines being said by a really charismatic Iago. Right. And I can't because <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know what that would be like. I'd imagine there's multiple ways you can play him, uh, uh, like some somebody who's eager to just cause mischief, maybe, or somebody who who feels vastly superior to Othello, possibly from a racial connotation. Exactly, because we should mention that you know the language used here is, is a more, but that reads uh, in our understanding as Othello is a black man. Now, more may have appeared more Arab in the context, but what this play does is really get into some issues of racism and outsiderness and how no matter how great a soldier Othello is, no matter how accepted in society he seems to be, he is always relegated to this outsider position, Mm. and that makes him vulnerable to somebody like Iago because of the color of his skin. It leads me just to thinking in ways of larger-than-life people who have these exceptional qualities, yet find themselves like constrained or having doubts upon the environment uh, that they find themselves in. Like, even though they're ostensibly accepted by society, I just see a really weird echo between his uh, uh, fugitive Nazi and the stranger. Hmm. And now, obviously, I'm not trying to equate Othello with (laughs) with an escaped Nazi. However, I do think that the stranger was a a bit of of a comic bits about like how does he try to accommodate being in a nice teacher in this in this uh, upper crust kind of environment and um and this 
case of acceptance in this high society because Des, Desdemona is the daughter of a senator. So he has attained now a leisure of prominence, but nevertheless, he is the only Moor, I believe it's the only Moor in that particular environment. Right. So, or at least at that level of leadership. That's right. So he has this level of respect, but at undercutting all that is a feeling of not belonging, something that like Iago is able to pray on, pray on, pray mm-hmm. on and prod and, 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 and induce. And I think, at least in Wells's portrayal here, it's that very sense of, I don't even feel the level of jealousy coming in, honestly. And part of that is because um, the uh, lady playing uh, Desdemona, Suzanne Cloutier, she does, to me, okay by being someone who is very much a goody-two-shoes, who is uh, righteously aghast <laughs> mm-hmm. at what uh, Othello is suggesting for her, um, uh, and just maybe a little na- a little kind of naive. There's really not a lot of um, awareness of the danger she finds herself in until it's way too late, of course, right. and... Mostly, she's just, oh, she's just nice and has nothing but the best of intentions to, like, to talk to Cassio, blissfully unaware, you know. So I took Othello as more of a case, and maybe this is in context of Wells' career, as a case of self-immolation, you see? Like, something of a guy who just ultimately feels he does not belong in this environment and... And it's just he's just pushed to the level where he will just destroy it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a a really good reading of it, and you know, and I think you can have a lot of motivations for that, whether it be uh, being the victim of racism or you know having this inner jealousy uh, come out in the most extreme way. We should mention before we kind of leave the race issue that being a film made in 1951, Orson Welles plays the role in blackface, which would have been just the normal standard of the time, even though uh, it is rightly be unacceptable today. Well, and but yet it, it achieves this kind of super weird meta level <laughs> when you watch, at least when I watch it, mm-hmm. because... This is a guy who's not comfortable in his dark skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so playing a guy who isn't that color naturally is <laughs> does kind of the level of discomfort kind of maybe matches our own perspective on like, yeah, man, I, I shouldn't be like this either. You know? Yeah, it, it, it suited his performance, but it's good that it is no longer. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I really enjoy about this movie is that this is kind of one of the most noirish German expressionistic takes of a hundred-year-old story that I've seen. Because Wells uses these locations to such really great effect. Whereas, I guess part of the staginess of Macbeth also was shown how it was basically like lit in a kind of stage-like manner. Mm-hmm. But here, there's moments of just these great expressionist touches. Like what, like when Othello realizes the scope of what he's done, for example, he is behind the most narrow, tallest jail bars you have ever seen. They mm-hmm. look like they're three stories high. 
Or we'll just take one example. Right. Or look at the scene in the bathhouse, which turned out was filmed in a bathhouse because the costumes hadn't arrived on time. <laughs> but nice. this is the scene where Iago murders Rodrigo. Rodrigo is hiding underneath some wooden rafters, and Iago is chasing him around with this dagger. And in what, in lesser hands, could have read as a, a pretty silly action sequence actually becomes one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, because I think he stabs are like superimposed while the camera's adjusting like this ca- this angle and that, and it's it's superposing imposing. So he's like he's stabbing hundreds of times, but yet all at once. Right, right. Yeah, and the way he uses both the like the water of the bathhouse the water of the the catacombs that are uh, underlying this castle fortress and i even love how he manages to use these birds not not until hitchcock in his bird based movie have like these gulls been this kind of wonderfully uh, avian chorus to iago's machinations and Othello's paranoia to just have him in the in the background in fact I think there's several shots where they appear literally appear to be like floating uh right behind Iago as if he has summoned them right (laughs) Wells has made so effective use of that location it's astounding when you just hear like you're how he was like across four countries and he still manages to make it look like a whole consistent work which is that's a pretty impressive miracle, you know, in and of itself. But in terms of the presentation of Othello, it kind of sounds to me that, like, you'd kind of would place this as some of the less adequate representations, right? Is that kind of accurate? Well, uh, you know, I'm very torn because Mm -hmm. I'm so blown away by the visuals and the filmmaking that I want to give it all the credit in the world, but... Also, kind of maybe a disadvantage of having seen a lot of different Othellos is I did also notice what was missing. So speaking of people who are missing, in what must be Wells's most famous non-directorial role, he scored a major success with a very small role in Carol Reed's 1949 masterpiece, the third man as the evil Harry Lime. And while it would be a blast to get into detail on this film, I'm not going to because Wells didn't direct it, but it does. So you say, (laughs) well, Carol Reed might have something else to say as well. There are certainly some similarities between the look of the third man and other Wells films, but I kind of chalk that up to Carol Reed has also seen Wells films. Yeah, that seems like a very plausible ex- explanation, especially since, to be fair to you and history, <laughs> all empirical data has said that Carol Reed is the director and that Wells only appeared for a limited amount of days during the shoot. I think the rumor had it was that he didn't like the sewer scene Mm -hmm. escape from because he didn't, it was cold and damp. (laughs) But my counter argument to all of that and to those of you listening in is, 
Look at the third man. <laughs> Look at it. Look at the wonderful askew angles. Look at the incredibly sharp expressionistic darks and lights of the image. Look at the fact that once again, Joseph Cotton is playing a, a loyal stoogy guy who's who's too honest for his own good, who once again gets upended by a charismatic yet morally ambiguous guy at his center. In other words, the perfect temper plate for wells the imagery the subject matter and the energy of it is something that is in wells films and sorry not even in the closest equivalent which i would say would be um odd man out does carol reed even approach it so why even bring up the third man well two things first of all go see it it's amazing but also Because it's going to help us lead into our next film. Because after the success of this movie, Wells at this point was continuing his role as a radio star. And so he developed a series uh, in the wake uh, of the third man called The Lives of Harry Lyme. Yes, that, right. Mm-hmm. Like Harry Lyme is, does do one of the greatest tricks in movie history because... He makes an appearance halfway through, and yet you never forget it. Like, I think only maybe Dracula does such a, makes such a great presence from such a limited impression. And Hannibal Lecter. Right, that's but, right. But as he was, as, as he's such an amazing villain in the film, for the radio series, the character is softened up a bit and becomes the lead of the series. And over a number of years, he plays him certainly as a shady character, but not with the kind of malevolence that we see in the film. But there's another character from the lives of Harry Lyme that is the entire reason for bringing this up, which is uh, a minor character uh, introduced in an episode called Man of Mystery named Mr. Arkadin. Was he an international man of mystery? (laughs) (laughs) I believe he is. I think think he'd qualify. And (laughs) in a supreme irony, uh, he also turns up to be a missing man in in two different ways in Wells's next film Mr. Arcaden in 1955 which was also titled Confidential Report oh, for the best. Expect the worst. some drink champagne some die of thirst no way of knowing which way it's going oh for the best expect Here uh, we follow a sleazy American smuggler who, along with his girlfriend, uh, is tipped off by a dying man about uh, a secret worth millions. And this leads him to the powerful and wealthy Mr. Arkadin, played by Wells as a bearded Russian with a very complicated past and a past in which many of the people we are introduced to start showing up murdered. And strangely, he hires this sleazy smuggler to investigate himself. That's the subject of the confidential report, is of a guy who has an unknown missing past. For some reason, he can't recall his early dealings in Eastern Europe. 
and he hires this main character to try and find out. And this becomes an international mystery of a sort as he jet sets around from one one European location to another European location. Well, he jets around from one location to another, uh, t- seeing more, uh, seeing a succession of ever more bizarre <laughs> and <laughs> mysterious figures. So yeah, this. Uh seems to be Wells's most episodic film as we're uh, jaunting from set piece uh, to set piece. And the collection of set pieces and the collection of characters really, to me, gives off a vibe of Coen Brothers. Specifically, you know, those Coen Brothers comedies when they try to actually make things as try to make deliberately make comedies. Like, if you really like that sense of like big Lebowski of just seeing a collection of increasing oddballs engaging in ever more weird situations. You might find some stuff to like about uh, Mr. Arkadin because there is a good collection of them. Um, One of my favorites is a guy who is talking about a sinister brothel while showing a flea circus to our main character. (laughs) Yeah, and a little bit later, uh, Michael Redgrave plays a very eccentric, uh, possibly uh, an exaggerated period read on homosexuality at the time. Uh, well, I think and, he has a moo-moo, for one thing. Right, right. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, antique dealer uh, who who gets into this really odd negotiations with the main character for some MacGuffin or another, but... Unlike Othello, which although it was filmed over such a such a long period with such a, a small budget, it, it still held, holds together. To me, the, this is probably Wells's weakest effort and seems the most disjointed. You have all these elements that might look good individually, like a, a costume party with costumes that look like they're right out of the Scarlet Empress. Right, or, or uh, Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yes, yes. Or, and well, Wells is great as, as Arkadin himself. But for me, the, the, the movie never comes together to become the kind of mystery that would be satisfying. Yeah, that's a bit of a shame because Arkadin is a really fascinating guy. I mean, he's mm-hmm. like for for one thing, he has a really really unique look. He he has this hairstyle where it's like incredibly straight, but then he has this very long and curved flowing bushy beard. So, I was trying to look what kind of look is that? And I just occurs to me, "Oh my god. You know, you know what? That's like a vertical mullet. <laughs> Arkadin is business on top <laughs> and all party on the bottom. <laughs> and Russian all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he and he he has a lot of manifestation at certain parties. Like there's one party where he shows up as the Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. There's an, uh, he has a great costume for the costume party you mentioned earlier. And Wells, I think, is fairly successful at having Arkadin as a character sort of inhabit 
two different parts. Like the Coen Brothers comic part of where he's a buffoon in certain moments. But then also, he can be a malevolent figure who can like appear at the most unfortunate places for our erstwhile hero and at the most unlikely times. Right. It's like for a, a character who was developed in the process of the Harry Lime series, you feel like Wells might be trying to create another Harry Lime in this character. Um, yeah, I can see that. But, totally. but it, it doesn't. It, he doesn't reach those heights in any way. But even the intro to the film shows that he definitely is having a lot of fun setting this character up. He shows this plane and asks us to contemplate: Why would this plane be flying through the sky with no passenger in it? <laughs> right. Right. The ultimate example of the missing person. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. That footage harkens back a little bit to Kane in the sense that it looks like this newsreel footage, but then Wells also traffics in like these very, very expressionistic ones, like where a person goes into a dark courtyard and then the camera pulls back to show that this courtyard is smaller and smaller in the distance of what appears to be an endless tunnel of darkness. And there's a scene where our erstwhile hero is trying to go and... um, meet Arcaden for a rendezvous at this party and the party is depicted in this incredibly kinetic manner where the camera is zooming around sofas and in through rooms mm-hmm. and 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 has to be somewhere in this crazy uh, apartment but uh, but our hero can't find him <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned Kane because the device of Arkadin asking for himself to be investigated leads to scenes where the smuggler protagonist is basically seems to be taking on the role of the news on the March guy in Kane to try to uncover these mysteries of the guy's life. With his, as you mentioned, he has a girlfriend that tries to aid him in in insinuating himself into Arkadin's circle. And Mm -hmm. it actually also leads to a scene that's interesting in where they, she has an argument with a drunken argument conversation with Arkadin on a boat and yet the camera is seems to always be tilting <laughs> at an angle different to the way the boat is tilting, different to the way that people are tilting. And it's just this great way of how like people's placement is just making a very uncomfortable, almost makes you seasick, to be right. quite honest. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, even at, at his least, Wells continues to view filmmaking as the, the, the greatest toy train set a boy ever had. And it's not always going to end up in a masterpiece, but it is always going to look incredible. You're always going to be very aware that the the man behind the camera is trying to do something special. That's right. Yeah, he gives you some real fun stuff to view in every scene. Like there's just just a place where our main protagonist is relating the story is this kind of has this wonderful dilapidated sense where snow is periodically falling and then you you see these people outside who are playing a mournful melody almost mm-hmm. seems just for them and they are almost is as microscopics as both the dots on the from the distance of the ferris wheel from the third man and 
from the fleas as mm -hmm. related <laughs> over the course of the story. And Redgrave's antique store could almost be a character and a personality of its own right because there's such a great <laughs> collection of weird brick and brack going on from from telescopes that are missing their lenses to an entire crocodile being suspended from the ceiling. <laughs> That's now there's a great point of sale, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for everything that's going on in this film, there there was still a chance for it to work, except for the performance of our lead. He is the number one reason why Arkadin, for all the creativity and for all the areas that have a demented charm, almost all of it gets negated into a slog of an experience by one of the most stunted, wooden, obnoxiously bland and lame performances I've ever witnessed. Something about which is worse than even stuff like that Craig Wasson and Aaron Taylor Johnson do. <laughs> People who, are, those guys are imbued with like an anti-charisma where like you see them and you automatically start being less interested in whatever the hell they're doing because he they're on screen. But the guy playing the main character is somehow even worse. He's a cross between somebody that Wells met at a party and says, <laughs> "We hey, you want to be in a movie? You're tall enough. <laughs> and lackey number five in a gangster film. You know, you ever, if you ever see the guy in the gangster film who goes, yeah, boss, yeah, boss, should I do this, boss? Should I do that, boss? Like that guy, the kind of annoying dude where then has the boss explained why he, what his scheme is going to be. Okay, imagine the delivery of every single line that way. I, I have my own cross version for this guy as well. I, I looked at him as a cross between Ralph Meeker's character from Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, yeah, right. Without the charisma. Yeah. And former man show host Adam Carolla. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he has Carolla's voice. Because he does have it like that. He does sound like right. that. I mean, he's, he, he's a mug. You know, he's, yeah, he's basically, a That's a he's great... basically the guy who should be playing third hood from the left. Yes. But somehow he's the lead. That's right. Exactly. And he is unfortunately our narrator <laughs> and our guide through this world of Arcaden. And... His annoying sense of mugdom. That's a, that's a perfect word to describe him. He is a mug. Actually, I would go a little further and say he's a cross between a mug and a schmuck. He's a schmug. He's a, <laughs> a schmug. <laughs> this schmug wears out his welcome in, I think, record time. It took me just 10 minutes for, for me to already be sick of him. And yet there was the rest of the movie to go through. And so by the time he's running around the city looking for some goose liver to eat at Christmas, I was just like, oh, for the love of God, will this movie just end? <laughs> yeah, so even if the film came together as well as it intended, which it didn't, he'd still be stuck with this performance. But making things even more complicated is the fact that there is no single official version of this film. It was unfinished, and 
What ended up being put together at various stages are uh, seven different edits of the film, three of which are currently available on the Criterion Collection edition. So there's no official version. We have the opportunity to watch any of the three versions uh, on the discs and decide for ourselves. You know, it gets me to thinking that, like, that maybe part of the reason that this is such a less successful collection of different things, whereas Othello worked so much better by comparison, maybe part of that is that Othello was written by William Shakespeare and Arkadin was written by Orson Welles. And a lot of sequences in the film kind of seem like a very much of an indulgence. That train set thing you mentioned earlier is just something where Wells wanted to go nuts in a particular direction and indulge his own interest, but his indulgence is turned in a totally different direction. Like one thing that notes that like it does, that similarity to Kane is really interesting, you know, of a, a mysterious, all-powerful figure and of a person's inadequacy and seeing what that is really like, you know, Justin also in Kane, both main characters are not present mm-hmm. at the very last moment. Yeah. At times it seems like between uh, the Kane references and the third man references and some noirish elements, he's hitting here uh, on a lot of themes that would continue uh, to interest him And that includes this kind of mania that underlines so much of Arkadin, how it also similar to the third man about how the environment seems so fraught with some sort of deranged sensibility, the sense of things not being appropriate, the sense of things falling out of control, the things that people have to do to kind of maintain some sense of control and order. But those elements just become much more rewarding, in my opinion, in his next film, Touch of Evil, in 1958. They put me in the lineup and let the bright light shine. I'm a ten soul like me standing in that line. I knew I was a victim of someone's evil plan. When a stew pigeon walked in and said, uh, that's the man. This is a film that's really interesting in context of Arkadin because this is a film that's about borders. It opens up on the border between U.S. and Mexico where a bomb goes off, cutting short a honeymoon for a Mexican police officer who enters an uneasy partnership with a U.S. policeman to find the culprit. But the suspect proves to be not nearly as threatening as the corruption and sleaze that the Mexican police officer and his new bride find themselves in. Well, if Lady from Shanghai was kind of a funhouse mirror version of a noir, Touch of Evil is the real thing with a bullet. This is uh, a movie that many consider kind of the end of the original film noir movement after which uh, similar movies would be called neo-noir. Hmm. Of course, the, the term itself 
wouldn't become popularized till the 60s and the French New Wave guys started to use it. But the elements are here. There is such a griminess to this film. There are such flawed characters and set pieces that are uh, as dark as mainstream films got in those days. And Wells is back at the top of his game. One of the reasons for this is he finally has some money to work with because of the roundabout way he became director of this film. That's right. The finest thing that Charlton Heston did this side of uh, starring in Soylent Green, right? (laughs) Right. Wells was originally supposed to just act in this film as one of the, the many roles he'd used to pay the bills to make more of his own movies. But when the producers were searching for a director, Charlton Heston, who was uh, involved in the project from the beginning, said, wait a minute, we've got Orson Welles here. If we need a director, why don't we let him do it? And one could imagine the producers hemming and hawing and go, well, you (laughs) know, but Charlton Heston was as big a star as you could be in 1958 so when he insisted that wells get put in the director's seat that's what happened and wells always the uh self-destructive gent uh (laughs) basically rewarded uh charlton's good works by making his character the corrupt cop hank quinlan the center of gravity of the film yep. and the by far the most fascinating character in it, whereas it was developed as the starring vehicle for Heston. It's kind of weird how a weird testament to Wells's directorial talent that he's actually able to take such a charismatic, iconic performer as Charlton Heston and make him out to be like a... a character actor in his own (laughs) starring movie that's some really nice trick if you really think about it right and in retrospect heston's uh performance has become a little controversial because he plays a mexican police officer he does not use an accent and he is uh portrayed in brown face i don't think he gives a bad performance in any way i think it's one of his best but wells has found such a powerful role for himself that Heston can't help but be a bit diminished here. And it's really to the strength of the film. Yes. The subject of the film moves away from its ostensible title, which is meant to be this loving couple who's trying to start their relationship, but they find themselves embroiled in this noirish mystery. And that is the touch of evil. But what Wells does is... Is moves it towards the title, original title of the book, which was Badge of Evil. Yes. Yes. And I think he goes even further than that, maybe, to make the border of evil. Mm -hmm. In two senses of the word. For one, in a masterful shot, one of the most legendary uncut shots in film history, and a technical tour de force, you start with a bomb being put in a trunk, and 
you have a shot that transverses multiple times over the border, introduces multiple characters, and leads to at least four incredible moments of suspense all throughout minutes and minutes of continuous runtime that also is about the theme, right? How porous such a border could be. Right. This is the most famous unbroken long shot of all time, and deservedly so, because it really follows Hitchcock's rule of suspense about knowing that the bomb is going to blow up before it does. Depending on the version of the film you watch, uh, you might end up with two different takes on this opening scene. Surprise to nobody, the uh, final cut once again was taken away from uh, Mr. Wells. And as released theatrically, this became the opening credit sequence with all the uh, written credits and a uh, score overlaid on this scene. But Wells had put together a memo of how he actually wanted his film to play. And decades later, it was re-edited into a version that this memo suggested. And it is, if you look at the two scenes, Wells's preferred version is far more effective because the credits are gone, the score is gone. Instead, as the characters are moving along uh, toward the border in this unbroken shot, we get ambient music from various sources. And because we really don't know when this bomb is going to blow up, you might suspect with the credits that would blow up at the end of the credits. Now you don't know. Now Wells has got you where he wants you. Two bits of credit need to be made. One is to um, Walter Murch, who helped re-edit this film into something closely approximating Orson Welles' wishes in 1998. And of all extra note is the memo that Wells gave to the studio is a gold mine mm-hmm. because I've been lucky enough to read it because it was also available on the special edition of Touch of Evil. And line by line, paragraph by paragraph, is full of just great insights as to what shot, what angle, uh, camera move, what performance, and the reasons behind it. And you get to see an insight into Wells' genius as a filmmaker and on a sentence-by-sentence basis. So it's a, it's a really wonderful resource, which will help you enhance for any viewing of Wells, in my opinion, if you just see the thought processes that went behind Touch of Evil, and by extension, you got to feel that he had the same level of consideration to even his most inconsistent work. But that leads to the question of, why did the studio cut it the way they did? Why did they feel the need to do that? Part of the reason why I think they did to do that is obviously because they were expecting it's going to be a starring vehicle for Charlton Heston, and he seems to be shoved into the background. But also because this is a movie that may have started by by taking the idea of Mexico as this sinister other location, but it 
draws us in and puts us as an audience in this world. This is a film that is swimming in disrepute, in sleaze, in things that are just not right. In fact, in a weird way, Heston's casting as a Mexican and the way his portrayal doesn't jibe with his iconic way people expect of him becomes a weird asset to the movie. It's because it's part of the sense that things are wrong. And it's also the same way that how um, his wife, played by Janet Leigh, who to me always seemed to have this level of antsiness upon the kind of sexuality that is a part of her character, the travails that she goes through in the movie are of of many different levels of disrepute from being peeped on to being given like a drug overdose. Right. And we, we should talk about that sequence because it's probably one of the most shocking sequences uh, an audience in 1958 would have witnessed. Basically, Charlton Heston realizing that he and his uh, wife are in danger has uh, sent his wife out of town into a deserted motel in the middle of nowhere. And in, in a scene that seems to predict Janet Lee's even more <laughs> famous role in Psycho, you end up with a very squirrely uh, hotel clerk uh, played by uh, Dennis Weaver, who's pretty much uh, chewing the scenery. And then this uh, gang of bikers kind of descends on her, led by Mercedes McCambridge in complete campy mode, doing this butch lesbian bit. And in 1958, this was some crazy shit. That's exactly right. Not a thing that us that any studio would have been expecting. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad you brought up the Psycho reference because I think Touch of Evil and Psycho are so kind of intrinsically related. I mean, depending upon your perspective, you could say that the suspense that touch of evil has was honed to a fine point in psycho Mm -hmm. which also you know traffics in disrepute and is pretty much lurid in in nearly every particular situation in it but i kind of feel that where psycho it's all done for effect all done to shock an audience all done to basically provide a thrilling experience that will just maybe push you off balance and go, wow, wasn't that a crazy ride that we were on? Mm -hmm. And whereas Touch of Evil pushes you, but there's some pulpy, dark heart underneath all this suspense and all this luridness and all this disrepute. There's some kind of feeling that I get when I see out of Touch of Evil, and I just feel from the texture of the film and the imagery that's just that there is a... Not just a darkness to it, but not a thrill of darkness, but a heart of darkness to it. Well, I'd suggest, because I agree with you and I felt that too, that we can give credit to Marlena Dietrich's character, who apparently knew him way back when he may have been a good man. From her perspective, she can see that good man from long ago. We can't see him. We see Quinlan as an utterly disgusting beast. And, and, and Wells 
plays that up. Already, Wells had gotten heavy by this point, but he makes himself even heavier with this giant fat suit and this makeup to exaggerate his facial features and the way he shoots himself from unflattering angles and sweaty. And he is is a man already broken by the time we see him. And we might just see this negative aspect, but Marlena Dietrich in a small but, but touching performance gives us a hint of this past that we don't see. That's true. That's a case where like her iconic presence is a great counter to what Wells is doing, where Wells is not so much as an icon, but one of the greatest visual representations of corruption of ideals that Mm -hmm. I think has ever been really shown in motion pictures. For however sleazy are Quinlan's methods, he does find a suspect, and he does know exactly the right buttons and methods to get him arrested, and part of the reason for his fall is, in fact, that the system and the environment had let him down and let a guilty person go free. The other thing that leads to his fall is a theme that Wells will come back to again and again, which is the betrayal by a friend. Mm, We saw this in Kane. We're going to see this again in the next movie we talk about. But even, even though Quinlan's underling who he, uh, he considers a friend is more of a minor character when he is stabbed in the back by him the hurt he feels by this friendship betrayal is palpable that's true and i i need to add that betrayal of a friendship is something also very much on the mind of the orson wells film the third man <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well Wells's choices to like make him just grosser and sweatier just mm-hmm. just shows just how he's such an, a great epitome of corruption and this is in fact the kind of gross creature that would inhabit this kind of landscape it is this sense of thing that's lost that makes it when he does get betrayed you you even feel for him despite the fact of the despicable things he's already done and it's a tribute to to his direction how this is the character and no his direction and his acting yes how this is the character we gravitate towards when we have charlton heston there doing fine as the righteous cop but wells knows that there's this depth here that he can bring to this guy that is constantly going to be catching our eye. He uses his framing and his bulk within the frame to like just really wonderful effect in a gra- another masterful sequence halfway through where they effectively force a confession out of the culprit. Mm-hmm. And it's as done as this great psychological before and after where the ostensible real police work, quote unquote, is happening in the living room 
But what's really going on is this muttered machinations that go on in the bathroom. And I believe it's even done in one single take as the camera moves in from the police procedure for the public in one side and then the real malfeasance and operation of the police in the bathroom side. And it moves back and forth. Wells has said that this is the scene he's most proud of in the film because the one take shot at the beginning of the movie is meant to call attention to itself. You can't not notice that he's doing a one take thing, but most people I would say if they are watching this film for the first time casually may not realize just how long this take is going on. Now there is an interruption in the middle where Charlton Heston goes outside to, to talk to his wife. But aside from this one, one cut, this, uh, this scene lasts 12 minutes. Right. And that ties in about how, in a way, Charlton Heston's character is kind of an imposition on the machinations of Quinlan. Well, he's also made useless by the film because uh, the suspect thinks that Heston and we think Heston will come in and save the day due to his heroic stature. But Heston kind of lets things play out. Now, now, by the end of it, it's Quinlan's corruption is revealed to him, and that sets in motion Heston's motivation to to take Quinlan down. But but he doesn't take action right then and there. He does confront him, and Wells and <laughs> another uh, wonderful uh, bit of performance is able to summon up this outrage where he threatens to quit because his honor has been uh, so besmirched. But in this scene, at least, Heston is not able to take any palpable action to right this wrong that he sees. It, it, it does lead to that irony that like, the thing that doesn't get Quinlan down is a sense of justice, mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe necessarily even fairness, but it just is steeped in betrayal. Right, right. Know? It's a kind of pre-Chinatown sense of... Things do not go the way morals and ethics expect it to, or you or people would like to in this particular kind of environment. Well, that they that's almost what, can't, right? That's what makes this such a textbook noir, is because even without the femme fatale and without uh, some of the other elements we come to expect from film noir, the moral ambiguity is dialed up to eleven here. <laughs> Yes, yes. And, and, you know, obviously, noirs have trafficked in caricatures and in grotesques ever since Gutman in the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. But unlike Gutman, the in- excessive, sweaty bulk and the skittishness of the hotel owner and the, the antsiness of lay sexuality and the sense of, like, confusion of, of the Mexican police officer played by Heston... They all, to me, have this great meaning. They seem to flow so naturally from the environment of things are so wrong that dropping any normal person would go and warp them. Even having Marlene Dietrich play a brothel owner wearing like this babushka kind of situation (laughs) and having these gypsy outfit is like so much of the movie adds this incongruity and it's also is extended in scene after scene like when when 
uh, Heston is driving and, and discussing the case. It's like this, also another continuous shot that they appear to be riding through these incredibly narrow alleyways at what looks to be 90 miles an hour right. while having a scene. And you're just like, you, you may not notice it when you watch, but you feel just the level of things being so close to being out of control in it, you know? So, I mean, this is maybe one of my favorite noirs for that very reason, that it takes these feelings and just embodies it in just show, making the characters relate to that kind of twisted environment in a way that does honor to both the people and the environment. For anyone who kind of views Wells's career as uh, beginning and ending with Citizen Kane, we enter another phase here where... He's once again just provided us with one of the great classics. Yeah, I agree. This is one hell of a brilliant work. It's consistent in both like its creativity and its brilliance all the way through. Right. So even though he wasn't allowed to finish it, we now have this restored version that shows his vision. But this would mark the beginning and end of his return to the studios because uh, once again with his next film, Orson Welles would be an independent. Evil concentrated must be disintegrated so I know that I'll be walking out Yes, I know that I'll be walking out again Yeah, and the idea of one guy trying to fight off a system could never be more of an appropriate subject for his next film, which turned out to be his take on Franz Kafka's The Trial in 1962. It's about a man named Joseph K. who finds himself awoken by authorities in his room who tell him he's under suspicion, but then they don't identify themselves, and they start casting accusations and aspersions at his every move and statement that he makes. Kay's attempt to get, like, justice or solace or even, like, answers to his plight just get him sinking into a nightmare world of bureaucracy and oppression. This film, for me, is one of a pure versions of a nightmare world of bureaucracy. This is a case where I find that Wells just goes all out in saying what's going to be like the most horrific, most oppressive, most stark, and most dehumanizing shot by shot by shot that you can make. And, oh my God, he does this to such brilliant effect. Even though we, we keep repeating how visually stunning these films are, it, it's worth noting that they tend to be visually stunning in different ways. So Very good this point. is yeah. a film that deals with a lot of 
contrast, a lot of interesting use of open space, almost looking like the kind of invented environment that Tati's playtime set up. Oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> that's so true. Look at like the like look at the open space just in the first fifteen minutes where the the po- the police or those quote unquote authorities are interrogating mm-hmm. him. To me, it's like Jacques Tati's like bedroom farce of oppressive investigation because you're framed from his bed. And at any moment, a policeman can show up from the left door, the right door, the kitchen in the, in the background and to just ask an inappropriate question. Right. If, if characters were distorted in touch of evil, here it's the sets, it's the environments that are distorted. And... Every room is either too big or too small. Visually, nothing looks right. And where, where Touch of Evil provided this immediately accessible and effective sense of horror based on its noir elements, here we're kind of left floating due to the Kafka adaptation, due to the fact that there just are no answers, that we're left as confused as the main character. Yeah, when things need to be big, such as uh, Joseph K.'s office, it's this epic, gigantic warehouse with hundreds and hundreds of desks. But when he's interrogated, they go to a room which is too small for two people, and yet there's four people in there already. (laughs) And done with a balancing light, echoing how Psycho used a a light to just illuminate the features, but only temporary, because that's the only light in this area on on the side of an incredibly bright white office environment. And as we mentioned earlier in the context of Touch of Evil, Wells seems to be flirting with Hitchcock's Psycho both uh, before and after, because here you have the performance of Anthony Perkins, Mm -hmm. who, while not a malevolent character as far as we know, is just as twitchy, just as guilty acting as Norman Bates. So a lot of those performance elements we became familiar with in Psycho, he continues here in a different context. Yeah, that's true. And that's one place where I think the movie falls short off for me, especially in comparison to the visuals. I mean, I guess in a way it does fit because who wouldn't be a twitchy mess Mm -hmm. in this (laughs) world? But with Perkins, like, I think you made a really cool point about, like, how he's a guy who, even doing normal things, just looks like a guy who knows he's guilty of something. (laughs) So in that way, he is kind of a perfect fit for the sensibility that Kafka wants to put in the story. However, what he isn't, to me, is really a good actor more than somebody who plays the embodiment of being a twitchy guy. You know, like he can't help but be twitchy even while doing normal things that no one should be really twitchy about. <laughs> With two notable exceptions, I find Perkins relies on his affectations too much. Most representative in the, his attempts to sort of seduce the neighboring 
woman in his apartment complex played by Jean Moreau. And is he seducing or, or being seduced? Be, because one of the, the stranger themes of this film is that being accused apparently makes him uh, very desirable uh, to women. So he has a lot of uh, yeah. awkward love scenes uh, going on here. And they're just as confusing as everything else. Yeah, and this is a movie and a subject which is about people who don't really have emotional connections. There's just kind of these things that people want from others, and even affection becomes this kind of bizarre commodity <laughs> that is um, something to be used and abused, and... The atmosphere just makes a total mockery of of <laughs> concepts of loyalty and honor and principle. It just everything is up for grabs, and there is nothing stopping the whims of fortune of affecting you one way or the other. Right. Even uh, family is something that seems to have no familiar meaning here uh, when a cousin shows up you can in no way tell how close they are what they think of each other and and he has an equally ambiguous reaction to his uncle max coming in and trying to quote unquote help max has all these ideas for how joseph k can extricate him from his situation he's sort of this guide through this nightmare world uh for a person in Perkins who has already shown incapable of figuring out how he get gets out of this horrific situation. And part of Max's idea is to give him an advocate. And that leads him to master advocate Haster, who is played by Wells himself. And actually, one of the best entrances of all time, where he's like a hidden figure for a moment until he appears from a bath or something, which causes smoke to literally be emerging from his head. Just <laughs> Wells a- is the master of the great entrance. He, he does this every time. And here he plays this character that is just sloth personified. <laughs> yes. He cannot be bothered with anything. He's in, And, of, of course, he never actually helps anyone with their case. That would be far beyond what yep. he considers his problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And in the physical manifestation of the absurdity of the trial sequence from the lady from Shanghai, (laughs) this environment cannot be more dilapidated, right down to the point that there's like a seduction scene on a pile of abandoned law books, this monstrous pile. (laughs) And this also continues in that there's twisted labyrinth hallways with people who are just sitting on stools next there that will eventually hear Haster's, uh, uh, t- um, here get up hmm, with people who are dutifully sitting on stools who will entertain to get an audience with, uh, Wells's Haster character. Will they, or won't they? <laughs> uh, one thing I think must have, uh, a- attracted him to this project though, was how he envisioned its opening, which is a parable that Kafka wrote that was not originally included in in the book about the law and about how this door, which uh, Wells shows visually, 
is closed, but it represents the law, and Anthony Perkins' character cannot enter, but the entrance was created just for him. It's strange. It doesn't really make sense, but on a subconscious level, it does a lot to kind of embody the madness of this world. But the emphasis on the law also, I think, connects this film to uh, A Touch of Evil, which is about police corruption is about the failure of the law in one context. And now in the trial, we're shown that the law is nothing but a joke that cannot be applied in any real way. Mm -hmm. And this is a case where like, you could almost say the different scenes are episodic in a similar kind of thing that you could say for Arcaden in the sense that each scene kind of has its own environment. But once again, as in Untouch of Evil, those environments match. You see just from the way that the police officers keep abusing even the very framing space of the apartment in Mm -hmm. the beginning to his vast office with its incredibly microscopic interrogation room to the... um, dilapidated look at the law (laughs) in Haster's office to the area of judgment, which is this vast expanse, which I think was actually an abandoned train station. Okay. And just has people just scattered about, just left destitute by the society. And right down to the oppressive outdoor environment, which features these, like, these incredibly anonymous square blocks with muddy ditches and (laughs) dirty roads connecting to it to the look of the titular trial itself is really great. Ironically, the one thing that comes to mind is harkens to like the globe theater that Shakespeare had so many of his plays because it's so vertical. Mm -hmm. It almost seems that like Perkins's character has to go up an ascending spiral to just finally reach a door, which may or may not lead, which on the one side, it's totally desolate, but then you enter it, and there's so many people. There's way too many people. <laughs> and how Perkins has to just assert authority by literally standing on the desk himself to go, because there literally is not enough room for him to make a stand, right? Right, right. Yeah. So then I think is the, the visual highlight of the film. He, he goes to this artist because to have a uh, flattering uh, portrait of himself would apparently do well by him in this trial and the artist is enclosed in this area with all these children reaching their hands from the outside of the room seemingly dozens of them and like eyes and mouths Mm -hmm. are like shown through the holes in the boards right it's it's a it's a haunting scene and so haunting in fact that it causes uh Perkins to to run away in through this uh, tunnel where the rays of light shine through the wicker. And again, you're just at a moment here where you you want to applaud at at Wells's mastery of the pure cinema. That's right, because it's like great nightmare fuel and yet makes such a wonderful comment upon on artists and celebrity and fame and the kind of unwanted glances that, that, that entails this kind of fame and the level of pursuit, which is entirely filmed from like 
a shot of Perkins running towards us, and then this wicker is just pouring behind him on on each pouring to the distance behind him on either side, right? And and this brilliance even concludes at the and near the end after Joseph K finds himself in a church, the last refuge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then he meets the advocate who's finally stood up one last time. And that parable comes back in an incredibly powerful scene mm-hmm. because how is it shown? Is a screen totally highlighting the very illusory nature that there was this gate where which Joseph K could have found the law after all. And it, as the light plays on it, the artificiality and the the transient nature of this concept of the law cannot be, ironically, more clear. You know. <laughs> Right, and that that brings us to the ending, which I would say is a spoiler, except it's also so abstract that it might not even count as one. But <laughs> but if Joseph K. doesn't know what he's on trial for, what he's accused of, he does seem to know what the punishment will be if he loses his trial, uh, which is death. Now, uh, in the original, in the book... Two men bring him down into a pit, yeah. and they can't decide which one is going to kill him, which one is going to stab him, and so they expect him to kill himself. He makes a stand that he will, will not do this, and so in the book, one of the men just stabs him and kills him. In the film, Wells takes a different tract because he thought that the uh, stabbing scene reminded him a little too much of the Holocaust. And because Kafka was dealing somewhat in in Jewish parables, he wanted to get away from that particular vision. And it leads to an ending that, that I actually think is somewhat of a misstep, because basically dynamite is thrown into the pit and kills Joseph K that way. And it's one of those old fashioned, you know, sticks of dynamite business. And it it felt to me a little anticlimactic compared to what came before. It does come off as abrupt, but I liked that ending scene when I saw it. And part of that is because that is one of the few times in the movie that Joseph K manages to get a measure of superiority where the system doesn't beat him down because he is given this knife and the expectation is that he's supposed to go and kill himself and he refuses and is actually successful at staring down the two men who brought him there. Now I, in the book, when he also refuses, but then one of the men proceed to just stab him. But in the movie, he rails against them. And he has a righteous speech saying, no, 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 no. You guys have to do it. You have to kill me. It's the system that needs to go and dispose of him. And the two men cower in fear because they don't want to go and be the people responsible. I think, in fact, even he says, you have to be responsible. And so they run off and then do this relatively cowardly thing by throwing the dynamite, which then I think even flashes in such a bright way that maybe even makes a weird statement on nuclear annihilation. Perhaps. And I think everything leading up to the dynamite 
is really effective uh is the the way you you know what you described as his you know railing against the system it's just that at the actual moment of explosion i felt that it looked like kind of something that might happen on an old tv show it leads me to wonder, like, why did Wells show it in this way as opposed to how it's written in Kafka's novel? And ultimately, I, my personal feeling about it is that now Wells is not going to have his character go out like that, you know, that the system might be all against him. But damn it, this guy's going to go down swinging and go down yelling and screaming. And it's going to have the system's going to have to try to take him down itself because he is not going to go down quietly and there's certainly nothing quiet about the protagonist of wells's next film 1965's chimes at midnight So a little bit of background here, because this is based on not one, but a few different Shakespeare plays. There's a series of plays known as the Henriad that starts with Richard II, goes through Henry IV, part one and part two, and ends with Henry V. Chimes at Midnight is mostly a combination of Henry IV, part one and part two, but just to make it more complicated, he also adds a bit of Henry V and a later comedy that Shakespeare wrote using the same main character, Sir John Falstaff, called The Merry Wives of Windsor. But these bits have only cameos in Chimes, which is about young Prince Hal, torn between two father figures. His true father, the cold and calculating King Henry IV, played here by John Gilgood, and Orson Welles' Falstaff, a man who fully embodies the hard-partying fat rogue whose story this really is. So the question becomes, will Prince Hal fulfill his royal destiny or be led astray into a life of debauchery? Or do we need to care about Hal at all? The film starts with Falstaff and ends with us mourning Falstaff's absence, or rather Falstaff's body being wheeled away, and caring about Hal barely. And the title, the alternate title of the film is Falstaff. And what Wells did was to edit the various Shakespeare texts to take Falstaff, who was in the original plays certainly a scene-stealing and very important role, and put him front and center in this version. So Hal becomes is a more interesting character in the larger context. If you were to take this even further into Henry V, which 
this movie doesn't do. But if you watch this movie and decide you want to uh, see a sequel, go uh, get a hold of Kenneth Branagh's debut version of Henry V and, and see the story continue and Henry more fully fleshed out. But you're right, Al. This is not Hal's story. This is Falstaff's story. This is the story of, once again, a betrayed friendship. Yeah. This is one of the things I I so enjoy the most out of these like Director's Club things, is when you look over the scope of Wells' work, Wells pulls from so many different things of his history, of his conflicts with uh, the studios, of, in fact... Even some of his works just immediately prior, and he pulls this together to make a very cool, singular achievement. Like, the, for one thing, do you realize that this is Shakespeare's Mr. Arkadin? Oh, tell me how that is. Look at, look at Mr. Arkadin, a figure, a big, boisterous figure who loves parties. Uh, and who has this level of basically shady disrepute, but it's done in a kind of um, in a kind of a roguishly enchanting kind of way in Arkadin, but done to the fore here, right? And then, but look at also look at how Arkadin is put together. Look at how Othello is put together, right? Othello is also done from all four from four what four different countries, right? Mm-hmm. And yet. It makes a consistent whole. Think about the audacity to go and take Shakespeare and where you said four different source materials, right? Once again, they're brought together to make a big, consistent whole. And then also look at like how he uses like this big buffoon force of nature thing, but just done to inform these Shakespearean subjects in a way that he has a big, big figure do the noirish subjects in Touch of Evil. By the way, that that you mentioned is even more impressive than you might know because he first put these plays together back in the late 30s on the stage. So he had been plotting something like this for quite some time. Wells has said that Falstaff is his favorite of his own roles. And you could tell that he has such investment and joy in exploring this character who he clearly related to his own life. There's this wonderful book called uh, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, written by Harold Bloom. And he goes through every Shakespeare play and comes to the conclusion that there are two characters at the center of the Shakespeare canon, Hamlet and Falstaff. Now that's controversial among mm. among Shakespeare scholars, but it's interesting in the context of this discussion because you can't overestimate how big a character Falstaff is, how much a force of nature, how even and especially as portrayed by Wells, he is this life-affirming figure of excess, of eating too much, drinking too much, sleeping with too many women, and 
embodying all that with such a sense of abandon and joy. He is such a pure version of his type that the 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 Hal story becomes interesting because this is kind of such a romantic temptation for a young man growing up whose other alternative is the responsibility of royalty and his family heritage. Mm-hmm. The take, the visual depiction of these two very, very different father-esque figures, because Falstaff is hardly any decent father or <laughs> decent human for that matter, <laughs> is cannot be more stark because Falstaff scenes are full of wondrous, chaotic motion and energy and just scattershot randomness. But when you get to Gilgood's location, it's so empty and humorless and dour. And all the stuff that's said is just in such a formal manner. And Gilgood is very effective at playing a real stiff of a human being who nevertheless has a lot of depth in how he approaches his ne'er-do-well son, and yet also, since he didn't really get to the crown by reputable means, he's sort of ambiguous on the kind of things he needed to do to get to be in that position. Right, and he's facing uh, a rebellion himself, by the uh, allies of the earlier king he deposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what's striking about the Gilgood scenes is the lighting and the use of the castle, which seems so immense with the, the shafts of dusty light coming through the windows and illuminating the set in such an evocative way. These castle scenes are the most visually impressive ones of the two environments while the scenes in the boar's head tavern look more naturalistic, but are brought to life by the characters. I would go and say mostly off brought by the character. Yes. (laughs) Falstaff cannot help, but just impose his presence on wherever environment he finds himself in. And, and it's just a delight to watch. This may be like actually um, Wells's most effusively positive performance with may. Yeah. With one, there's one in his later filmography that comes close, but up until this point, he's been playing flawed figures and figures who rage. People have figures who have doubts and so on, but Falstaff, like just plows through for the most part. He just, he is like you said, he's just this, this force and he's always willing to go and uh, go for a scheme or an extra chance at a drink or an extra chance at some money or an extra chance to cheat somebody or (laughs) fool somebody. And is, I think that's kind of interesting how, how it seems Wells that is most positive is also Wells that is most disreputable. There's a line that I think really 
sums that up well. Hal and Falstaff are role-playing, and Falstaff is playing Hal, and Hal is playing his father, King Henry IV, and he has this great line, and he says, banish plump Jack and banish all the world, which really sums it up for me that he represents not just himself, but this entire way of life. But Mm -hmm. then in an equally ominous bit of foreshadowing, Hal says, I do, I will. This leads to like two particular things that keep me as a, as a Shakespeare neophyte away from really fully enjoying this picture. Uh, One of which is that unlike Macbeth and Othello in a weird way that, in a lot of cases, the dialogue just defeated me in a lot of hmm. points. This is not helped, by the way, that, that Chimes at Midnight had, for the longest time, the worst ever like sound recording and leading to many sections to be barely listenable to understand what, what is going on. Thankfully, Criterion had cleaned up the sound, and you can hear it. Nevertheless, like the dialogue came across to me in a lot of cases as so quick and there's so many different things going on that I was left lost. One thing I can tell for people listening that will be really helpful is three different things. Mm -hmm. First off is that in the beginning, I was really screwed around by characters meeting up with King Henry IV. And then later they're talking about like, boy, this bowling broke guy. I, I got a pox on this bowling broke. It only took me later showings to realize that Bolingbroke was the original name of King Henry <laughs> the Fourth. So when they're talking about Bolingbroke, it's about him. And secondly, was there is a moment where people are getting recruited, and these people are more and more incompetent and more and more inadequate for the task of being part of a battle. And Falstaff just keeps saying, "Prick him, prick him, prick him." <laughs> this is nothing salacious. It just means pick this poor schmuck. To be drafted. But the worst one for me, actually, was continually through this boar's head. They just keep talking about sack. Oh, bring me the sack. Let's see what's in the sack. And I'm just, and yet no sack would ever arrive. No, in the sense of a bag. So I'm just, where is this sack? What is this magic sack? What the hell is in this sack? And sack is just an old term for a kind of alcohol (laughs) of which Falstaff and Hal partake in. Specifically a type of wine. Yes, exactly. But so when they talk about sack, you're just uh, talking about drinking wine and lots and lots of it. Anytime you approach a Shakespeare film that uses the original Shakespearean language, there's going to be a period of adjustment if you're not used to it. And this is a more complicated story than Macbeth or Othello for one reason, because it's got elements of a number of different plays combined. It's far scenes are rearranged. The scene that opens the film where uh, Falstaff uses the line chimes at midnight. Oh, the, Oh, the days we have seen, we have seen the chimes at midnight talking about their lost youth uh, is placed at the beginning. Whereas in the, in the plays it would have taken place far later. It's also interesting in that it's categorized under Shakespeare's history plays which have a different feel to them than the the high tragedies of Macbeth and Othello. But unique among the history plays is the inclusion of Falstaff, who is not a historical figure. Hmm. 
So he was kind of sort of a, a, a comic relief or more meant to be a guide for people in those plays? Well, he certainly provides comic relief, but I do agree with Bloom that Shakespeare actually means Falstaff to represent something very primal in human nature. So I think he's far more than comic relief. Yeah. And speaking on comic relief, the other issue I had on it is that uh, Prince Hal, played by Keith Baxter, there's moments where he is cavorting with Falstaff, mm-hmm. where he just looks stupid to me. <laughs> just, just like for one thing, it is unfortunately not helped that he is a very, very close approximation to Anthony Perkins, <laughs> and the thought of uh, King Anthony Perkins is pretty unbelievable the moment you mention it. <laughs> but then also, when he's cavorting around with Falstaff, it is he is mugging and and bulgy-eyed, goony laugh, stupid grin. I mean, it's 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 Pee-wee Shakespearean playhouse with this guy every time he's next to Falstaff. And I found it as a turn a massive turnoff the first time I saw it. Then watching this later for this podcast, I just realized that when he, when Baxter is playing next to Gilgood and is supposed to play a, ser- a person trying to seriously appropriate the role of a would-be of an upcoming king. He's actually very good in that one, and he's very good when he meets a fellow young rival for the throne, mm-hmm. the Hotspur. The also very- named Harry. Yeah. A lot of people named Harry, Hal, and uh, Henry here. <laughs> All right. Apparently, like, uh, the British did not quite get to the <laughs> I in the dictionary when it came to naming. <laughs> but um, but that's interesting that they have they share the same name because, right, they are in competition for the same would-be role, right? Mm-hmm. And they both have a level of mutual respect for each other. So those work well. So I ultimately think what's the, what's the quote-unquote matter is that Wells and Falstaff are so great and so fully convincing in their exuberant, wild abandon that Baxter cannot help escape that gravity (laughs) of what he does. Because here's the thing. Falstaff is phenomenally convincing no matter how goofy he is or no matter how serious he is. Whether he's like being hoisted by 16 men on top of a horse, (laughs) playing dead, like being being fooled by by bandits who are robbing him or hiding under a hiding in a trap door. He's never less than compelling. He's never less than wondering what the hell is this guy going to do next? And you just and there's I don't see a single wrong move in what Wells does mm-hmm. as as and which ironically just highlights whenever Baxter does what I think is a misstep. It cannot help but look incredibly contrived when you see how Wells is natural at it. Well, well, there are two things working against Baxter, I think both of which you alluded to. Mm. And one is which any young actor who is not considered one of the great actors of their age is going to suffer when all his scenes are either with Orson Welles or John Gilgood. These are monumental actors, monumental performances. And while I certainly didn't have any 
problem with Baxter's performance. He do, uh, he doesn't reach that those heights. But when you talk about him seeming awkward and odd in his uh, scenes with Falstaff, in a way, he that's really what they're going for. That is how he should seem because remember he's in a place where he does not belong. He will end up taking his rightful place as King Henry V. But in order to get to that point, he has to realize that he's got to break from this personality, this misspent youth that Falstaff has inflicted him with. And we also see this through the eyes of Gilgood, who, you know, when he talks about or first interacts with his son, is basically like, like you're a huge disappointment, you know? Yeah. I kind of wish the other Harry was my son and not you. Yeah. And Gilgood does really good at doing an epic amount of disdain um apart from even the dialogue just the way he looks down his nose i think he literally does that to to hal early in the film is so very effective yeah that's a signature move (laughs) (laughs) oh is it okay it's that's that's gilgood's go-to move nice (laughs) so we should talk about the battle scene well that's right you know i'm glad you brought that up because i think you can look at this film as a case of Three different environments with the battle scene at the center because, as you alluded to, the Boar's Head Tavern is it's very much a big self-contained environment. And the castle where King Henry entertains visitors and where Hal must go to finally meet his destiny is its own very distinct. The two parts are very, very distinct. And what, we, what do we have in the middle where the two meet? is this just epic display of conflict in its most dirty, random, and chaotic form. Yeah, it's one of the best war scenes ever filmed up to this point. It makes a few dozen actors look like a few hundred actors, and it reminded me of nothing so much as those amazing uh, battle scenes in Seven Samurai, uh, mm. Because again, we're we're in 1965. The kind of large scale hand to hand combat with blood and gore was uh, not commonplace yet. And, and yeah, you do see blood in this battle scene, and it grounds the film because where there's humor in other aspects of it, when these two armies are going at it, it looks like something right out of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Some saving Private Ryan, because you have that sense of chaos and anything could happen. And a level of dirty invalidity to the whole pomp and circumstance of battle, too. Mm -hmm. It kind of does to our idealism of the Knights at the Round Table what Quinlan does to the knowledgeable police detective... In a noir story. Oh, good point. It makes it seem wrong and sick and dirty and a little disgusting and not and especially with 
the periodic look of Falstaff in a ridiculous suit of armor that makes him look like a moving stovepot. Right, periodically, he's, he's like he's the coward in this battle. He is going to do whatever he can do to be wherever people are not. That's swinging right. their that's, swords. That's right. You would call. You would cut from a shot from like these two guys wrestling in the mud, and then to like um, Falstaff just peering out behind the bush. <laughs> You'd cut to shots of like a horse stampeding over a guy's head, and another person's uh, chest getting split open with a giant club, and then it just cuts to like Falstaff attempting to scamper from one <laughs> from hiding spot to another, and so it really takes the mickey out of that whole endeavor to kind of put you in a very weird place going it's a great midpoint between all the would-be pageant stark pageantry of the king's realm and just the excessive party fun atmosphere of falstaff's realm Mm -hmm. right you know so it's a really nice fulcrum and then Obviously, it does a sea change there as Hal attains more, not just like the mantle of king, but it seems that he kind of basically just said, well, forget it with Falstaff. I got, I don't want anything to do with him. And it's mm-hmm. so harsh. And I don't find in the movie, at least, that there's even a moment of where he just regrets it. It seems to be absolutely a complete clean break as far as he's concerned. It's true. He's uh, he's chosen his father figure, and he's chosen to be the king. And because this is Falstaff's story, we're going to get to what I think is the film's triumphant moment. But before judging Hal too harshly, the people who would have originally seen the play would probably have known the history and known that this kind of break was necessary for Hal to become King Henry V. So, but that's not what this movie is about. This movie is about what happens to Falstaff. And the rejection scene is one of the most heartbreaking and moving scenes, I think, in all Shakespeare. Yeah. And might lead to Orson Welles' greatest acting moment on film because Orson Welles brings something to the moment that, at least to my knowledge and other versions that have been talked about, is new. King Henry IV has died, has reconciled with his son, and now Henry V has now been coronated, and Falstaff believes he's going to be welcomed into his world and get a great title and great power and be able to continue partying with now the king. He has all these illusions that he's going to be a very important man. So he goes up to Hal, who is now with his robes and crown and and his entourage. He approaches him expecting to be embraced. And instead, Hal coldly says... I know thee not, old man. And then we get to Wells. And Falstaff is devastated. Wells shows that Falstaff is devastated. But what's unexpected is that Wells gives Falstaff also a look of pride. Because even Falstaff knows that he's made the right decision. 
that even though selfishly he would want to be embraced, he knows that the only way Hal will ever be a great king is if he separates himself from his past life. So this look, this mixed look of hurt and pride that Orson Welles gives this moment is just jaw-droppingly moving. I wonder if that was something that the texts had really dealt with. Did the Falstaff character in the original Shakespeare texts have this measure where Falstaff would pride in how finally becoming an adult that he never would be? <laughs> that is, there's nothing in the text that would say that. Now, of course, we can't know how Falstaffs have been played over the last 400 years mm-hmm. if, if Wells is the first actor to take this angle or if other actors have done so before. But having read a little bit about this play, um, mm-hmm. it's been noted that this was an original take on the character. Mm-hmm. It leads me to thinking that in a way, maybe Orson is kind of like Walter Payton. There's one fun thing I always notice about watching Walter Payton play for the Chicago Bears. Great running back, ran for thousands and thousands of yards. But when every time he was tackled, he would always move his arm and just push the football just a little bit more. Hmm. <laughs> so he probably gained a couple hundred, if not a thousand yards, just mm-hmm. by that extra little push that he gave. And I look at what happens in Falstaff, and I feel that from Wells. I feel that he gave Falstaff that dimension in a similar way to how he gives Joseph K in the trial just an extra moment where he gets a level of authority in the same way like Falstaff in especially how he's depicted in a lot of the movie he could so easily have been just a guy who wants to be a lovable buffoon Mm -hmm. who just gets his like Georgie from Ambersons he just gets his comeuppance but it's too late (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that extra dimensionality where where he goes you know Hal you're gonna be all right I think that's something that Wells just added and which, by the way, I'm not sure if I'm on board with. Hmm. I do agree with you that he does have that feeling in the end, that, that, that there is a measure of pride and that is apparent. And it might be a, a titanically great example of his acting. But I don't think it's really honors the fall staff that we've seen throughout that movie. One who has shown his pure, white, hot dedication to just trying to have... In the words of the Spinal Tap keyboardist, have a good time (laughs) all the time. (laughs) And the charm of the movie for me is how he, in every sense of the word, embodies that feeling. And what is a guy like Hal to do when he has one father be the Gilgood type and another to be this type? It's two great opposites for which a person will choose. So as, as the last of Wells's Shakespeare adaptations, I think he does hear what he didn't quite do in Macbeth or Othello, even though those are also movies that have greatness about them. Mm-hmm. I think here he has made the definitive film version of these Shakespeare plays. And 
realized what he envisioned so much earlier in his life. This idea of taking Shakespeare in his vastness and molding it into a story that can be told in two hours without losing any of the power. And so for me, Chimes at Midnight ranks with Touch of Evil and Citizen Kane as the highlight of Wells's work. Hmm. Oh, cool. Like I said, maybe it comes from my perspective that I don't have that kind of enjoyment of the film in the way that you do, but especially in context when the way we look at his work, I just have such an amazing level of appreciation. When Again, when you think of the idea of taking all these great ingredients of Shakespeare's work and yet mixing them all together mm-hmm. and literally creating the path of a character who is the side character of all these different works and making him just such a compelling presence from which you can reevaluate all that work and having it be such a great consistent success, especially with all the limited resources, I have to say on that level that Chimes is a triumph. You can see a lot of what makes Wells Wells through a Shakespeare lens in Chimes at Midnight. It's the most Wellsian of his three (laughs) and something that enhances them both, I feel. So we now move on to Wells' shortest film, 1968's The Immortal Story. Wells plays Mr. Clay, a rich but isolated old man who knows nothing but the facts and figures of his wealth. And when he hears a popular sailor's yarn about another wealthy old man who uh, hires a young sailor to impregnate his wife, he can't quite process why such a story would be told over and over again if it was not true and it never happened. So he decides to make it happen. Throughout the films we had been looking at of Wells, one of the things that's kind of a marvel is films such as in Macbeth or Chimes at Midnight where you can see that there's limitations on the budget and time and time again, Wells is able to spin gold out of these situations. Unfortunately, in Immortal Story, he doesn't have a budget of $5 million or 5000 <laughs> This is a movie that literally looks like they gave Wells a one camera, one house, and 50 bucks, and a plane ticket for Jean Monroe to come in. <laughs> and, well, he got Two weeks, Orson, what can you do? It's his first movie in color and uh, is actually set in China, 
although clearly it was not filmed there. It was uh, filmed basically in his home at the time in Spain, and some Chinese actors were used as extras. And you're definitely right. This, this is a film that is limited not just by the budget, but also by the story, which does feel more like a short story than something that, that would be the basis for a complete film. And that that's actually correct, because originally this was going to be an anthology of two films based on the works of the uh, author Karen Blixen, who wrote The Immortal Story and apparently a number of other short stories that Wells was quite enamored with. Okay. So his full vision uh, for this did not pan out, and we're kind of left asking, what does this story that he has told say to us? Because it's it, it feels like more of a fable than a story, because there's no character that doesn't understand the concept of fiction yeah but this character doesn't and we're 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 supposed to i think not take it literally but go into some similar territories that the the trial took us in and not be so literal so i'm left kind of to conclude well yes it this is interesting this idea of this man wanting to create fact out of fiction which you could probably apply to what an artist does he envisions something he imagines something and then in the case of a filmmaker you turn it into something that you can see and hear right kind of like how charles foster kane wants to make an opera star right So, yeah, I think I'm very much with you on the idea that this immortal story is an attempt to do a fable that expressly comments on something like the artistic process of how can you take something and make it real. I can see a way where you can maybe make this film have worked. There's a limited sets. There's limited lights that are used to illuminate the Mm -hmm. scenes. There is limited furniture. <laughs> However, you know, films such as you know Clerks can show that like you can do a lot of fun things and a lot of interesting things in a very very limited setting. And there's a great film by Abbas Karastami called Certified Copy, which works on a similar territory of two people while they're traveling, though, through different locations, but it's still totally in natural environments and shows with just a limited amount of transport, you can show people in a situation where you wonder, is it real? What is real? Like, the stories people make up, where's the truth and reality of it? So you can do this on a limited budget. However, I don't think Wells thinks in such small scale. Mm-hmm. In fact, as we look over his films, I don't think he's ever had such a small scale, right? Because even Othello has scenes with dozens of soldiers. Maybe Wells is a figure. He is so big that making this kind of intimate small story just isn't something that he's able to do because it falls flat on a character level. Like, pretty much completely. I don't think you know anything about his Clay character whatsoever, except that for some reason, 
He feels the need to do this. And his friend, who is an Igor-like dedicated assistant, <laughs> who also bears an unfortunate physical resemblance to Anthony Perkins. <laughs> I guess Wealth had a type. <laughs> he is just dutifully faithful to a fault. And speaking of resemblances, I was uh, a bit distracted at the casting of the sailor because, to my eyes, he looked exactly like Rocky from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's kind of ironic considering his role is to be just a, a tool. Right, right. A sex object, as it was. Exactly, a sex object, not even utilized by a sex partner, but by a third-party voyeur. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think we're on the same page. I'd categorize this as interesting, but almost the definition of lesser works. But the context of when this film came out Mm. is that Orson Welles was trying to work on any number of projects simultaneously. And and as we go through the Wells story, one of the more depressing aspects of it is that although we have all these films in however close to being finished or unfinished their state is, they we can see they have been made. But there are dozens of films that Wells conceived of, tried to launch off the ground, and did not end up completing due to him not having access to money, to studios, to Hollywood as an industry. So as we look back on this amazing career, you know, Wells once said, oh, they'll love me when I'm dead. And sure enough, that's what happened. But at this stage in his career, he had more to say. He had more to do. And it didn't happen. So I'll just throw out a few examples here. He had was going to do a movie in 1970 called The Deep, which was based on uh, Charles Williams' novel Dead Calm, which was eventually adapted into... Another movie in 1989 with Nicole Kidman. Oh, and Sam Neill, <laughs> which Sam was, Neill, a, yeah. was a very nicely mm-hmm. done film. Right, so that could have been an Orson Welles film. He actually did shoot, but never edited together, a dream project of Don Quixote, also in the early 70s. This was one he, he filmed over a number of years, even longer than usual, with scene, most of the scenes being filmed in the late 50s, but scenes being added as late as 1972. It was eventually kind of sort of released in 1992 but not as an Orson Welles film another director got a hold of it a fellow named Jess Franco who was a uh, Spanish exploitation horror director with films such as The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein A Virgin Among the Living Dead and Swedish Nympho Slaves well think of it this way (laughs) It could have been James Franco. There you go. There you go. So so this guy put together his version of the Wells footage, which can in no way, shape, or form be considered an Orson Welles film. He had other Shakespeare projects he wanted to do. He wanted to do The Merchant of Venice, and he wanted to do King Lear. And these are only a few of many other examples of unfinished works. 
but fortunately he was able to get another one done. Yes. And the film that he managed to finish his career with, that film shows a great level of creativity and inspiration, but of a whole new genre in his film F for Fake in 1973. It's documentary or a mockumentary <laughs> or a folkumentary, uh, whichever kind of film it is. It's Wells's look at the border between art and truth through using like old footage, reenactments, and and through both movie magic and stage magic, from which he hearkened back to his earliest moments. We look at the reality, the real purpose, and the real value behind fakery. <laughs> Of all kinds. Wells is having so much fun here. Uh, you rightly called back his love of magic, and, and you do see him do some magic tricks. But even when he's not doing magic tricks, he is got this smile that just says, watch what I'm about to do. I'm going to show you something you haven't seen before. Yes, it almost may rival Chimes at maybe something, a film that get, kind of gets a, a bit of what really drives Wells. Something, what really, what does really Wells want to do by showing films for people, you know? He, he wants to go and, like, entertain you. He wants to thrill you. He also wants to fool you in, in a way of messing with people but in a whimsical way and in a way that maybe illuminates so that you pick up on something, pick up on something you didn't even know you had, you know, mm -hmm. this, this feeling of charitable fakery, you know, about saying, Hey, isn't this cool? Isn't this, isn't this wonderful or interesting how I just deceived you? <laughs> and that sensibility is just reflected through this look at art and, in one way you can call this film is artception where the deception of the art world is shown at this level, then another level and another and yet mm -hmm. another level still. So it can put you in a really interesting place where you go, I don't know how I'm supposed to look at this, uh, that what I'm watching. And one of the most interesting levels here is him questioning the entire notion of authorship and whether it's important or not. And there's, uh, there's such a, uh, a powerful scene where he talks about this church that is a beautiful, gorgeous piece of architecture, and he describes it in, in poetic terms and makes the point of nobody signed their name to this church. We don't know who built it where the ideas came from, how it came to be. We just know it's here and it makes our time on earth better to have this piece. And it's no less because we don't know who created it. Mm -hmm. Contrasting though, is this 
Falstaffian level of exuberance of people who claim ownership. Mm -hmm. This art guy who has, by faithfully duplicating works of classic artists, has managed to put out an, a, what looks to be just a wonderful existence on the, the small island of uh, Ibizia. A fellow named uh, Elmir de Hore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what an interesting last name, by the way, right? And, and he's having a grand old time visiting the cafes in town, hosting these swank parties where all these people are um, attending. And he got this through doing these duplications to which he claims that his work <laughs> is in all the great galleries. Mm -hmm. Elmir, while no Falstaff by any means, is still a very fun presence. And... The attitude he has towards the kind of paintings that he's done is an interesting embrace of compromise, let's just say. Wells and his editor, Marie-Sophie Dubu, really do a masterful job of highlighting these contradictions just through this really wonderfully exuberant use on editing because you go and look through like still photographs of uh, famous artists through footage that uh, El Elmir has been through through earlier TV broadcasts, current footage that Wells has done, footage of footage of Wells in uh, editing console watching this stuff and it's constantly shifting this perspective in a really great energetic way and doing these really cool insightful moments through just the juxtaposition of editing like there's a real fun moment where someone in who looks like he's interrogating elmir but it's footage from two totally different things <laughs> but they're contrasted with each other to make it look like these two people are having an uncomfortable moment whereas those Two bits of footage could have been like done years apart. You know, for a guy who's uh, famous for long shots, there's an almost MTV-like music video quickness in the editing here. And again, you you know, at this last stage of Wells's career, he's still innovating. He's yes. still working in styles that he hasn't worked in before. Definitely, and he's like has the energy level uh, in terms of these cuttings of a person a third of his age it just moves so fluidly from one subject to another from one perspective to another from making it like feel like you are there in this moment to be making you incredibly aware that you're watching someone watching someone in this moment that wasn't maybe necessarily even true in the first place and just when you think that like Oh, you're looking over at Elmir and his story. The movie goes to some completely unexpected tangent. One involving an, an author with unclear motives of his own and involving, of all people, Howard Hughes. <laughs> Think about that as ironic. How ironic that his ending film is also about a titan of industry that remains fundamentally an enigma. And also, like with the Arcaden thing, ends up being missing and disappearing from the scene. And when you're thinking about that, then the movie shifts in yet another direction. And this direction includes 
a look at some of his own past history and what was possibly his most famous bit of fakery, the old War of the Worlds broadcast from the late 30s. And we discuss it in uh, part one of the episode, but Wells goes through here again how how the the broadcast led to uh, widespread panic and people thinking there was an actual Martian invasion. Mm-hmm. He has this appreciation of all the multiple layers. So many scenes in F for Fake shows him talking to people about filming the movie, mm-hmm. showing the camera crew filming the movie, and showing Wells himself both in old footage doing the doing these War of the Worlds and Wells himself performing magic tricks. Harkening back to his own early boyhood history, it's so much about Wells, but so much about Wells faking things. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's it is it's a real great like like kaleidoscope slash Lady from a Shanghai level funhouse mirror about a guy and his own approach to his own work, right? For sure. And he's got one more part to this as well, which is a young woman who is telling this story about how Picasso would paint pictures of her and then her grandfather would sell it without his permission. (laughs) And that was really great because it's that lady is shown walking around in the very beginning of this movie. Mm -hmm. And so what you think is just a attempt to distract or make some sort of point about um, a point about like people's attention. Right. Cause all the men are just staring at her intently. She's a beautiful woman. Exactly. Which I believe Wells even said was an abandoned project from him, from him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what you think was just something of an aside turns out to be some critical part of the story that he's trying to say. Once again, like the movie gets you to think of what you see about it and recontextualize and look at things in yet another viewpoint. But the magician may have one more trick up his sleeve. Yes, I want to just say that the film's way that it enchants and gets you to like think on things is very much best appreciated by taking a look what it's doing with as little detail as you can. The things we mentioned on this do not even begin to scratch the surface of the different kinds of pleasures and surprises that Effort Fake manages to do. But that being said, now we're going to bring in on this last trick that Brad was talking about because Wells does a statement in the beginning where he says, ladies and gentlemen, for the next hour, I'm going to give you nothing but the facts. And then while you're watching and seeing all these wacky characters and very fascinating juxtapositions, you kind of are put in like almost an anti-magician spot where you just go, is this really the truth? Is this guy honoring his promise? As Wells relates on the Picasso story, Wells makes his own appearance and says, remember my promise? I promised you the facts for an hour. But that passed 20 minutes ago. (laughs) And now I just made that whole stuff up. (laughs) It's just a great rug pull moment. 
And as it turns out, the woman who Picasso was allegedly painting was played by Oja Kadar, who was Orson Welles' girlfriend to the end of his life and is still one of the people that manages his estate. So her presence in the movie is yet another level of the fakery. So I have two thoughts on this. The first is that it's incredibly cheesy. And the second is that that's okay. Because Wells takes such delight in those lines and introducing this last bit of fakery within the film itself Mm -hmm. that even though it's like the equivalent of a hokey old vaudeville joke, the very fact that he seems to love it so much sells it for me. That's right. He gives you this feeling that there is a kind of magic in the audacity of how you try something that is able to fool people and enchant people, but at its heart is very, very silly. You look back at his career and it has these kind of reflections. Just look from back from his first image of the reflections of a snow globe as a nurse approaches in Kane to just all the crazy stuff that happens in Shanghai and Mr. Arkadin to just the kind of absurdity of a man behaving the way Falstaff does in Chimes at Midnight. And I think this is something that he's been always exploring. Just, wow, what a crazy thing that movies can do to get us to believe and wish and feel things through just basically playing around on a big playset, you know? Maybe in a sense, the fact that we can believe and feel and be drawn in on these worlds of such cheesiness, maybe the right word, the rightest word for the thing, is magic. It's a word Orson Welles would appreciate. And while F for Fake stands as his last major work, He did manage to put out a very homemade uh, documentary onto uh, West German television called uh, Filming Othello, which was released in 1978. Filming Othello is available on the Criterion Othello disc. It's, It's very unassuming, but is something that I'm just so glad the more wells we have available to us, the better. If it's anything close to what he was able to write in his infamous memo about Touch of Evil, that's Mm -hmm. very well (laughs) worth seeing. Yes. And if you could believe it, because, frankly, I I think the story of Orson Welles' career is just as fascinating as his films. And that story may still not be over, because even 30 years after his death, one of his unfinished projects may actually get finished. He has been working in the early 70s on a project called The Other Side of the Wind, with most of the filming being done from 1970 through 1972. This was, again, if you can believe descriptions, another innovative new style of filming. It's the story of a uh, film director played by John Huston. 
There's also appearances by other directors, Peter Bogdanovich, Claude Chabrol, Paul Mazursky, Dennis Hopper, and it's a commentary on the end of the studio system. Remember, at this point, New Hollywood would be coming to the fore. Apparently, there were scenes shot in color, other scenes shot in black and white, scenes with still photography, 8mm, 16mm, and 35mm films would be uh, interspersed depending on the type of scene he was doing. Of course, right now, we, we just know this from description, but thanks to some crowdfunding efforts by uh, Bogdanovich and, strangely enough, Netflix, there is a distinct possibility we may see the release of The Other Side of the Wind within the next few years. The prospect of more Wells. What more can a cinephile want? Think about what Wells did with all the different sections on Shakespeare to mm-hmm. make his Chimes at Midnight. And think about how poetically cool it is that this disparate footage that he did for The Other Side of the Wind, there's a chance of some other group of people try and take those great ingredients or potentially great ingredients and make a quality work of art out of that. And what does that speak of his comments on authorship that he's looked at in so many ways in F for Fake, right? He has that great scene in the church as you so aptly described and says, ultimately, who knows what the... uh, artist was, but it's something that lasts and people can find value. And isn't that the ultimate meaning, regardless of who put it together? And I think it's a really cool irony, though, that by virtue of creativity, inspiration, maniacal drive, a very knowing look at your own foibles and vulnerabilities that Wells created out a body of work that will ironically provide for his own immortal story as long as there's going to be film. Well put. So I hope you guys listening in have enjoyed our take on these films of Wells, something that clearly needed multiple parts to just go get into. And sometimes I feel like in his most remarkable works, we've just scratched the surface. There's obviously a treasure trove of rewards you can get out of looking into more on Wells's films. And I hope you guys feel at least inspired to give his films a further look or a first look. If you guys have thoughts or comments or criticisms on what we have done with this episode or other episodes, you can feel free to give us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We are found at iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, and our episodes are available online on the website of directorsclubpodcast.com, and we're at Facebook and Twitter for Directors Club Podcast. Thank you for listening. Yes. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. And uh, hope to catch you next time on another episode of The Director's Club.
Now this has been standing here for centuries. The premier work of man, perhaps, in the whole Western world. And it's without a signature. Shot. A celebration to God's glory and to the dignity of man. Well, all that's left, most artists seem to feel these days, is man. Naked. Poor. Forked radish. There aren't any celebrations. Ours, the scientists keep telling us, is a universe which is disposable. You know, it might be just this one anonymous glory of all things. This rich stone forest, this epic chant, this gaiety, this grand choiring shout of affirmation, which we choose when all our cities are dust, to stand intact, to mark where we have been, to testify to what we had it in us to accomplish. Our works in stone, in paint, in print, are spared, some of them for a few decades or a millennium or two, but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. We're going to die. Be of good heart. Cry the dead artists out of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced. But what of it? Go on singing.